You're listening to the Peak Physique Podcast with Andre Adams on the NASM Podcast Network. Hey guys, welcome back to another exciting episode of the Peak Physique Podcast. I'm your host, Andre Adams, NASM Master Trainer and IFBB Physique Olympian. Today, we've got a very special episode. We've dubbed this the NASM Mythbusters episode, and I'm welcoming to the show for the first time one of my good friends, and actually, I was on his podcast many times, Dr. Rick Ritchie, also NASM Master Instructor and the host of NASM CPT Podcast. Welcome to the show, Rick. Andre, it's a pleasure to be here, my friend. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. Likewise. It's funny. I'm usually on that side of the screen, so today we get to mix it up a little bit. I know. Congrats on the podcast. I'm really excited that you're doing this, and I'm very, very pleased to be on your show. And we'll do a little collab. So I'll run this episode on the NASM CPT podcast to get a, a little more exposure for your your new podcast, the fledgling podcast, and see if we can bulk it up a little bit. Absolutely. I like that choice of words. And and Thank speaking you, of, <laughs> of guests, it looks like we have an extra guest behind us. Who who do we have joining the, yeah, the episode with us? So so this is funny. I have a bearded dragon always in the background of the show. I never mention him for the past <laughs> six months or so. If you watch the NASM CPT podcast on YouTube, he's there. You probably never noticed him before, but you noticed him because I pointed him out earlier. But chances are he just kind of slides by, never really moves during the podcast. In fact, I recorded a podcast about three and a half hours ago. And uh, he hasn't moved. That's where, <laughs> that's where he's been the entire time. And we and we did for you guys that are tuning in. We confirmed he's alive. He's healthy. He's just chilling. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I put a little mirror under his nose and make sure. That's right. He's doing well. So good to have you, brother. So today, you know, good you and I have have chatted. It's funny. Sometimes you and I will just DM each other this stuff. But you know, the yeah. the topic for today, I'm excited about. It's really going over some of the you know, more trending or influencer exercises that we um, tend to see frequently on social media. And we want to look at that from more of an evidence-based standpoint, as we do with NASM, right? And and yeah. teach people how to maybe assess which ones are potentially good mm -hmm. exercises that add value, and maybe they're good variations to incorporate into their physique training. Um, and then which ones maybe don't add value and are just kind of, you know, they're just trending, right? Because they're maybe fun yeah. to shoot or People are just trying to get creative and think of new exercises. So um, yeah. nothing wrong with yeah. creativity. Let me just throw that out there. Like if you're doing yep. it, you could do something else, but you're being creative and it livens up the gym for you, then that's one thing. But, you know, if we're looking at optimizing things, then, you know, we'll we'll pay particular attention to the choices that are being made. Exactly. And then ultimately, right, we want to make sure we can maximize, maximize how much they're getting out of their physique training. And that's where I agree with you. If there's creative ways, this is how we evolve the sport and start to evolve our training and, and adapt new exercises, new variations. Uh, but we also don't want to put clients or athletes at risk either for injury, for maybe some silly movements that they should avoid altogether. Because <laughs> <laughs> we, we've seen our share of those as well. So Indeed we have. Yeah. So I'm thinking, you know, let's kind of start at the top, Rick. Mm -hmm. when, when, when we're scrolling through our social media, mm -hmm. And we come across new exercises. A lot of times they're really the same exercises, but done in a completely different way or a different modality. And 
let's maybe walk our followers through what our thought process is when, when we're analyzing what a, you know, how effective um, or how safe an exercise is. And then, you know, towards the end of the podcast, you and I are going to dive into like two or three very specific examples and, and walk through a full breakdown of those as well. Yeah, that's great. I, I, I usually start with what is the function, right? So when I look at it, there's something called neuromuscular efficiency. And the, the definition that I always put with that is the neuromuscular system's ability to produce, reduce, and dynamically stabilize in multiple planes at various speeds in a safe and coordinated fashion. So this it's a it's a hearty definition, one that I learned many years ago, and I think it's really valuable. And we can break that down. So the neuromuscular system's ability to produce, reduce, and dynamically stabilize. So that's concentric, eccentric, and isometric, right? Yeah. In multiple planes, sagittal, frontal, transverse, uh, in at different speeds, right? At various speeds in a safe and coordinated manner. So I think we got to start off with that. Are we producing, reducing, and stabilizing? Are we controlling it? Uh, multiple planes, various speeds, are you doing it safely? All of that stuff should be prioritized. And the first rule of anything, especially as a trainer, especially as a trainer, so you're out there coaching and training somebody, the first rule is do your best to not injure somebody else. Exactly. That more than anything, more than results is the not hurting somebody because the not hurting, you know, when you hurt somebody, you will most certainly not get the results. So minimizing and everything's got a little risk versus reward, but there are generally safe exercises that we can do. And so that's, that's kind of the, the overview. And then I always then take it to what do muscles do? And if you will entertain me for a moment, I think we should point out that there are rules to muscles. Muscles yep. follow rules. And if we follow the rules of muscles, then we will get more out of those muscles. So um, I remember I first started looking at rules of muscles. I had three. There were three rules of muscles. Now I think there are probably more. So I'm going to give you a few more. But the first rule of muscles is that muscles only pull. Even when you push something, mm -hmm. the muscles are pulling. So they're actually getting shorter. So the term contraction or a concentric contraction, they will, they will contract or get smaller. So the ends get closer together. And that's the number one thing. Like the first thing we look at is that understanding that muscles will only pull or they will slide over each other. The sliding filament theory, actin and myosin, these are Z lines getting closer together. So a basic yep. rule of muscles, but also rule of muscle that they only contract or relax. A muscle fiber doesn't kind of activate. It doesn't give you 20% force. When you engage a muscle fiber, that muscle it will fire with every bit of what it's capable of doing. Now, you may only recruit a certain amount of fibers, but yep. everyone that you do recruit is doing it at 100%. This is known as the all or none principle. So when a muscle is facilitated, it will contract at 100% intensity. 
All right. Yep. So second, that's a, a second rule of muscle. Muscles have two attachments, uh, and at least one of those or at least two attachments, and then at least one of those attachment crosses a joint. And these two points are known as origin insertion, or my preference is there is a proximal and a distal attachment. So understanding this about muscles, muscles only directly move the joints that they cross. All right. right. So now we're getting very specific. We're going to have a conversation about this particular one a little bit later, but muscles will only directly, now they can indirectly move things, but they will only directly move joints that they cross. Muscles only work, well, muscles work best in the direction of their fibers. And so we can reciprocally inhibit some muscles. We can preferentially activate muscles by doing this where the muscles are engaging at a higher rate, at a better rate, more facilitated way when you align them with their fibers. And then there's another rule. It's a soft rule. It's that the insertion moves towards the origin, but that's not always true. So if I do a pull-up, the origin or the proximal attachment will move closer to the distal attachment. So I call it a soft rule, but, you know, because in general, the insertion will move towards the origin or the distal attachment moves closer to the proximal attachment. So there's just like ticking off about six rules of muscle. So if I understand that I'm looking for both efficiency and I understand what muscles do, then the last thing I need to do is just understand what we call functional anatomy, which mm -hmm. is the body's ability to do all of that production, reduction of force, the stabilization of force. I have to understand what the muscle does. And that is done through uh, familiarity with muscle actions, joint actions, what they do at joints when they engage, which ones stabilize, does it work better, and in what plane of motion, and then in what direction of fibers does it work better at. So a familiarity with the function of movement and learning a little bit of kinesiology along the way. Absolutely. I love it, Rick. You know, we're going to lay that foundation and definitely build upon that. And we're going to talk about that functional anatomy and some joint action and yes, how that's sir. going to relate, right? How can we leverage that for something like a specific goal, be it performance or physique training? So if you guys are just joining us, this is the NASM Peak Physique Podcast. I'm your host, Andre Adams. And I'm joined by my good friend, NASM CPT podcast host, Dr. Rick Ritchie. We are breaking down everything about, uh, we're calling this NASM, you know, kind of myth buster style episode, but everything about trending influencer movements and what you need to know, right? When you're selecting a good variation for potentially some new or existing exercises. So Rick just kind of laid the foundation of how do our muscles physically work, right? We try to kind of back everything by evidence-based science and muscle anatomy. And I'd love to take this information and we're going to, you know, use that to talk about how we can leverage that for competitive advantage and physique training. And I think Rick, when we, when we take a step back and we think about those joint actions, you know, if we look at traditional exercises and then different modalities that mimic the traditional exercise, a lot of the joint actions, right? Vector forces, where those insertions and origins are moving, a lot of it's really the same. And that's where I struggle sometimes <laughs> because I look at things and I think to myself, well, 
that's an identical movement. It's just, you know, your relative plane of motion, maybe you're, you know, standing upright versus laying down or um, things like this. Mm -hmm. But those are those are the areas where I think there's, um, you know, potentially some really good things to think about. And then there's others that maybe it works well for the individual because they connect better mind muscle connection, you know, given a different modality of of an exercise. Um, yeah. a, a few things too, I, Rick, I think we can maybe tack onto that. Let's add on, you know, those main mechanisms of hypertrophy, right? So when we yeah. think about taking a muscle through its range of motion and we're trying to achieve that hypertrophy or the, you know, swelling of the, of the muscles and cellular tissue, we've got like the primary ones, right? Um, most people are familiar with now with extra exercise induced muscle damage or muscle trauma. We've got metabolic stress, buildup of inorganic uh, phosphates and, and lactic acid and these types of stress. And then we've got, you know, mechanical tension inside the muscle to your point where the muscle fibers, you know, physically have tension, right? They're being, they're, they're in this kind of pulling motion. And if we think about those three mechanisms, and then we look at these exercises, we got to think which, which one of these three mechanisms are they emphasizing? And if I can't directly relate it to one of these uh, that's where I usually question the effectiveness of the exercise. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, potential risks. I think even thinking one step further of like, um, let's say it's a new exercise that's maybe unfamiliar, looking at potential regressions or progressions if you're training a client oh, or an perfect. athlete. Um, and ultimately, maybe just trying it out for yourself, right? And then seeing how how that movement feels. Um, in relation to or in comparison to an existing similar movement. Absolutely. I think one of the the least focused on variables when it comes to resistance training is tempo. And yeah, actually, that's not true. Most people focus on tempo and they'll do something quickly. I think in the the world that you're in, things do slow down quite a bit more. And I think it's a great starting point to move slowly to feel what the muscle is doing. And it's harder to feel that when you're going quickly and it's harder to control it when you're going quickly. And it's harder to uh, build up the stabilizers that protect the joints if you're moving too quickly. But when you go slowly, a lot of the muscles engage around what you're doing. So the slower you go, and this is not, this is not a, a hard and fast truth. The slower you grow, the slower you go, the more you grow. Uh, that's not a necessary truth, but there's a lot of truth to that little maxim, which is you are engaging the muscle, you are creating mechanical tension, you are increasing the metabolites that build up in that. So the three versions of the requirements that you had mentioned for hypertrophy all work really well when you slow it down. And I think that that is a great starting point. Now, certainly you can build up speed and you can start moving faster. But when we look at variables, the thing about variables is that they vary, they change. And if you're not changing your variables, if you're just staying constant, then we also, we start to adapt. And when you adapt, we usually think of adaptation as a good thing, but once you adapt, then you get to the maintenance phase. So no matter what you're doing, if you keep doing the same thing over and over, you're just going to keep getting what you've already gotten. So you have to start creating variations and have your body respond different. And that's, yep. that's vital to, to our progressions. 
Yeah, I think on a, a you know a prior um, episode on your podcast, we had even touched on that because that's a that's an interesting point when we think about you know the adaptations, right? Our body's constantly in a state of adaptation, and we do need variety. We do need progressions, and then we do have some tools that potentially allow us to train even maybe some you know similar or the same exercises um, or you know a similar OPT phase for longer by progressive mm -hmm. overloading. Um, different mechanisms, right? We can progressive overload the weight, the intensity, duration. I love that you mentioned time under tension. That's your best friend in the world of bodybuilding, yeah, right? And it. and um, we call it embracing the suck, right? Because it's going to hurt. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. You gotta, you gotta a lot of it. truth to that. <laughs> so, Let me tell you something. One yeah. time I was, I was in a, a gym. I think it was when I was down in Miami for a about six months, I managed a gym down there. And I was like, Miami's not for me. And I came back to New York City with my tail between my legs. But when I was down there, there's some bodybuilders that were working out. And I just, and I left, right? Because there's so many times that me as a generally smaller guy will lift weights and I will be a little embarrassed around some of the bigger guys. Well, used to, I'm, I don't care anymore, but used to be embarrassed. And then I see these bodybuilders and I, I'm telling you this one guy, He's doing like a one-arm preacher curl with yeah, like 15 or 20 pounds. And of course, he may have done uh, a, a volume of like 6,000 pounds worth previous <laughs> to that. But he's preacher curling one arm, the lightest weight, and he is screaming, ah, trying to get the weight up and doing everything super slow. And I was like, well, I guess... I'm not going to feel bad about going light if this guy nope. is like <laughs> screaming his 15 to 20 pounds up on a preacher curl. So that, yeah. uh, that definitely did something for, for me and my ego watching him because clearly he's got the muscle yep. and he was just doing whatever finisher he needed to do at the end. And that's the importance, you know, sometime in the early days, like in the beginning, when you're first building the foundation of muscle, you, you tend to have to go a little heavier with like closed kinetic chain compound movements you know, a little bit heavier weights at times to put that initial muscle on. However, once you've built that foundation, and I can personally attest to this through myself as both the athlete and the coach, it's a lot easier to maintain or make, you know, improvements from that base with much lighter mm. weights, stronger, you know, you've built more neuromuscular control, you're able to tap into a deeper, um, you know, mind muscle connection with each, you know, we talked about the fibers of the muscles, I think you're able to just yeah. recruit more uh, muscle activation mentally, and you don't need the crazy heavy weights. I mean, I, I probably I do, lift yeah. like you guys see the throwbacks in my videos where I used to do crazy stuff like, you know, six, seven hundred pounds on deads and squats. And um, a lot of people don't, don't know. I used to bench press over 500 pounds just a few years ago. And it's funny now I can maintain my size and even make improvements at about 50 percent, 60 percent of those weights um, without doing anything crazy. So uh, definitely yeah. time and attention, slowing things down and then good variety and progressions. I um, love it. Yeah, Rick, let's dive into our first exercise here. This one okay. is one that I'm sure people have seen. And, and we're going to start with, you know, talking about upright rows, but I'm also going to just maybe throw one or two additional exercises into the same bucket. When we're talking about anything that involves, you know, abducting the upper arm away from our centers. Um, so a traditional upright row, probably the most common, I would say is barbell, you know, maybe even Smith machine. That's very common. Um, we're starting to see a lot of trends now where um, there's people that would be laying back on, let's say like a cable row, seated cable row, and they'll take the, you know, the long bar and you'll see them um, laying back right parallel to the rack and doing their upright rows, um, laying flat supine facing the ceiling. 
And so they're flat on the ground, yeah. lying down, like they're taking a nap. Right. And, it can be on the ground. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And and even even side <clears throat> laterals, right? I've seen that too done in the same way where lying flat on the back, on the ground, or on a bench. And I look at so if you if you can imagine uprighting them, right? 90 degrees. Yeah. I look at the joint action and I think to myself, well, that's the exact same joint action as if they're standing straight up <laughs> above the low pulley. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, this is, I think, a fun one for you and I to think through. Let's let's start with that same logic that we used, okay. uh, you know, earlier. Let's talk about joint action. Do you see any benefit to joint action or, you know, the muscle insertion points moving closer to the origins or any of these mechanisms? Yeah. So when you when you do an upright row, you look at the joint action is just abduction in the frontal plane. So the the but the elbows are staying in. So the hands are staying in tight. The elbows are staying in tight. But it's really about the shoulders and sometimes adding the shrug in there to get the traps involved a little bit more. So we look at upper traps and the deltoids primarily in this exercise. Uh, I think it's a good exercise. It's one that. Uh, that hosted a lot of fear mongering um, in the early days, uh, especially even us at NASM. We're like, well, this is basically if I go into that position in upright row and then I straighten my elbow out, that's an empty can test, which is how you test for uh, a strain or a torn supraspinatus or supraspinatus muscle, the, the most commonly torn rotator cuff muscle. And so through that logic, we would say, well, if this is the test of how one is, how a, that muscle is hurt, then maybe doing this as an exercise is not a great exercise. Um, but fortunately, we have research. <laughs> and the research has really panned out to show that that doesn't cause any more damage to the arm. I think it's like a lot of things. You can, you can have salt on your celery, you can have salt on your fries, whatever it is, unless you have high blood pressure, and then you probably shouldn't have so much salt. So it's not that the exercise is wrong, it's just that that exercise might be wrong for some people. This is upright rows in general. Mm -hmm. So how do you know? Well, you start light, and if it antagonizes you, don't do it. And yep. if it doesn't bother you, keep going. So as uh, I would like to say the, you know, what's my range of motion on something. And I usually, we just say full available pain-free range of motion without compensation. So if you can follow that as a general rule for your range of motion, then I think that that's, that's pretty safe. So the, mm -hmm. the upright row, I like it. It's a good exercise. The supine version of it where you're lying down it is the exact same exercise biomechanically for the movement, yep. right? So my my shoulders are doing the same thing. Maybe my scapula are doing the same thing. My elbows are doing the same thing. The only thing that changes, though, is the that I don't really have to stabilize the weight with my spine, right? So if, mm -hmm. if I have my back and my butt are supported by the floor when I'm lying down, then some people might be able to do potentially a little bit heavier weight because they're stabilized. Now, it's not a particularly easy position to get into. It's not that hard, but um, it's again, it's not a wrong exercise. I don't know if it is a, uh, 
uh, a game changer for anybody. I like it, that, but think about this too, Andre. Like if mm -hmm. if you're trying to do some type of finisher at the end, so you're doing a cable row, like a seated cable row, mm -hmm. and at the end of it, you're doing a seated cable row with a with a, an overhand grip, right? So a pronated grip, and then at the end, you just decide to lean back and do some upright rows at the end because the other types of rows are completely mm -hmm. gassed then you're just tacking on another exercise. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's a nice little contributor. But the difference between that standing version and the lying down version of the same exercise, <laughs> not a lot of difference there. Yeah, I, I tend to agree 100%, Rick. It's like, it's not definitely not a bad exercise. I think, you know, upright rows in general right, yeah. are good for, you know, building up some roundness and fullness to the delts, adding some density, you know, to that upper girdle. Great for any physique athlete. Uh, but to your point, when we compare a traditional standing, you know, be it Smith, Cable, Barbell, Upright Row to this mm -hmm. supine lying, I think maybe there's that bit of, you know, stabilization, like you said, with the back uh, and the glutes supported on the floor, but you're still getting the compact, you're actually still compacting the spine too in that uh, scenario. So there's not a big benefit there. It's more just, like you said, if you, if you feel like you get maybe a stricter movement out of it, um, where you can you know, connect a little bit deeper with those muscle fibers, maybe there's some benefit, but I tend to agree. Um, the way that we train our physique athletes generally will do the more traditional versions. Uh, but you know, if you want to add that in as maybe a finisher, lightweight burnout, maybe it's easier to do a drop set, um, you know, with the cable stack. That's a good point. Yeah, true. Right. You have selectorized weight, uh, weight stack. So definitely, I think it's, it's got some value, but it's probably not going to change the way that your physique looks overall. No, right. I agree. And then one other thing, too, is if you think about it, if I start to get to my last one, um, I'm not a huge fan of momentum lifts. But if I get a rep and I don't get it all the way up, if I'm standing, I can do a little bump and just try to hold it there for a second and still get the eccentric. And I might mm -hmm. be able to get another two or three where I lift up. I can't get it much higher. I get a little bump and then I can lower it down. And that benefit from the eccentric is pretty big. Um, you don't get any kind of accessory movement when you're lying down like that. So uh, it's not always the, the best thing because you always have to control it. So most of the times we're trying to limit people from doing those swings and the bumps. But I think that once you are really familiar with your body, with the movement, with the exercises, then you can add towards the end a bit of momentum, stabilize it, and then decelerate it to kind of finish out the set. Eccentric loading. I hope you guys are taking notes. If you're just joining <laughs> us, you are on the Peak Physique Podcast. I'm your host, Andre Adams, and we are here today with special guest, Dr. Rick Ritchie from the NASM CPT Podcast. We've got two more exercises to review. Rick, I think we're on to something here. And you know, this might just have Me to too. be a recurring episode at some point because I get these requests. And, and here's what for you guys that are just tuning in, here's what really prompted the idea. Sometimes it's just us scrolling through our news feed and taking note like, ah, that could be an interesting exercise. Or there's a lot of videos that tell you an awful lot without telling you anything. So then my natural curiosity wants to go a little deeper. Uh, but most of all, a lot of the athletes, so my athletes that are tuning in are probably going to laugh because they send me these videos and ask my thoughts. And I, I think this is a fun you know, review to have on, um, you know, certain cadence, but, uh, exercise number two that we're going to break down today is going to be our glute bridge hip thrust. 
right? Everyone's familiar with baking those cakes as we've dubbed it, <laughs> right? <laughs> Rick, maybe, gosh, it might've even been two years ago now, you and I kind of went down this, um, you know, glute function and glute training with uh, yeah, a good friend man. of ours, right? Dr. Sonny Andrews was on that episode right. with us. And glute bridge, hip thrust, some of the, uh, probably the primary two um, influencer movements that you'll see on, uh, you know, on the gram. And I think they're two of the most effective exercises for building density to the glutes. Um, also going to have some inherent benefits in the hamstrings, especially biceps femoris, right? We're going to get also into the, even a bit of the outer quads, right? Vastus lateralis. And there's been a lot of studies done on, on both of these exercises. I'd like to break them apart, glute bridges or hip thrusts. And, you know, Brett Contreras has been out there, right? There's been, um, Dynavet Gluteator team, right? The uh, Jeff Case Bolt there. They've done a lot of work in measuring like EMG activity, um, studying the specific uh, muscle anatomy and function. And long story short, a lot of the data conflicts. And so it's one of those, this is like quantum mechanics, right? You get the result that you're looking for. <laughs> and yeah, if you right. think about the physics behind it, the physiology behind it, if, if we're doing an exercise, Rick, and I'm, let's say I take you through a glute bridge and I'm cueing you to right we're going to put a mini band around the knees and i'm cueing you to have a, a bit of you know femoral rotation and get a bit of abduction uh yeah. squeeze your outer glutes if we measure that activity nine times out of ten we're going to read more activity in the outer glutes because i'm telling you to flex your outer glutes right um versus if you did the same exercise without me giving you those cues you might get a totally different reading um right. and this this is where i think it becomes interesting now one of the things that we've seen trending more recently is there's debate, um, you know, from some notable figures in the industry that maybe you shouldn't be doing glute bridges at all. Maybe it's, you know, if you look at the um, anatomy and look at the spine, right, there's some people that tend to think that it's more, you know, back extensors that, um, you know, are getting more of the work, you know, when we tuck into posterior pelvic tilt at the top of hip thrust. Um, so this is a, it's a complex joint, right? Um, many joints are involved. Many smaller muscles, muscles are involved. Let's let's break this one down, Rick. What do you what do you see, you know, happening in the glutes um, primarily when we tuck into posterior pelvic tilt at the top of a hip thrust? And then let's talk about maybe the ideal setup that we would recommend for glute development. Yeah, I I like the idea of the posterior pelvic tilt because it just gives you a fuller range of motion with with that. Now, it makes a lot of sense in a hip thrust. It doesn't make really very much sense in a squat. Doesn't make really that much sense. Uh, and, well, kind of as you lift into a deadlift, but you, you see people at the end of a squat tucking, but they're tucking against no resistance. Right. Right. They're they're being loaded vertically, and then they do a posterior tilt against nothing in front of them. So that doesn't make any sense. But in a glute bridge, it does because you're doing the tilt directly against the resistance pushing down on your hips. So I think it's a great cue. In fact, it's it's something that for a very long time, you know, you, you'd hear neutral spine, neutral spine, neutral spine. And I was like, well, neutral spine is good, except for if I go into a posterior tilt, I might not be a neutral spine, but I do engage the muscle more. So neutral spine is for the rest of the spine at that point, not for mm -hmm. what's going on at the hips. And as you go into a posterior tilt, the line of your back, the lordosis starts to disappear and it flattens the back versus keeping that slight arch in the low back. Um, 
it, it tends to do better for what's going on with the glutes. Now, the argument that is made, and listen, when I say argument, it, an argument is not necessarily um, enraged, right? So an argument is that you present your point and you try to back it up and you try to make a logical case against it. Uh, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about right now has not been focused on in uh, in research, so you don't see a lot about what's going on compared in things like the amount of spinal extensor activation in a bridge versus a deadlift. Mm -hmm. But if you do a, a bridge and your spine engage, your spinal erectors engage, that's okay. They're supposed to. That's right. what they're supposed to do. You're supposed to stabilize your spine. It's the same thing as if you go into a deadlift. And if you're doing an RDL and, you know, I maybe some people on the planet somewhere are like, don't do RDLs because it's a lot of pressure on your back. But like you're that's the point of it. You're supposed to engage <laughs> your entire posterior chain. I yep. ain't mad at you. I want that to happen. Now, the difference is, are you doing 405-pound bridge and a 225-pound deadlift? That's a big difference on what's going on at the spine. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, that 225 is a lot further away on the, on the fulcrum, like where you're holding the weight, than the bridge is. The bridge tends to be shoulder blades a little bit below the shoulder blades, and of course, the shoulder joints themselves that are holding the the RDL weight is further increasing the lever length that's on your back. So right. uh, I don't I don't think technically there's going to be a lot more engagement in one versus the other, the bridge versus the RDL. And if it is, it doesn't necessarily mean that's a bad thing. We we have fear around the the back because we have been taught so much to fear what's going on in the back and protect your back. Yes, you need to protect your back. That's what you've already mentioned in the podcast, Andre. Yep. You've, you've, you've said progressive resistance training at least once, maybe twice. So let's say it again, progressive resistance training. Do what you can, not what you can't. And there are a lot of people out there in the gyms, Andre, doing what they can't do and not what they can do. So mm -hmm. I think that that, as we mentioned, Take it back a little bit, slow the tempo down, get that mind-muscle connection, focus on what you're trying to do, and that posterior tilt there will also help to engage the glutes, particularly at the end. Now, the hard part is can you try to maintain gluteal engagement while lowering down in a hip mm -hmm. ridge, and that feels nearly impossible, so that's your next mind mind muscle connection task is can you maintain engagement while decelerating that force right and i think that's the key rick is it's it's really about managing the amount of resistance that we have in that vertical plane you can still add the mini band too especially if you're just getting used to it band. and yeah yeah and if you you know if you don't have um let's say completely uh like a really strong mind muscle connection yet maybe you're newer to training with these types of movements it can definitely show some benefits. And as long as you keep that, you know, the loading across the hips moderate, once you get to a really heavy weight, let's say you're, you know, you see the influencer videos where there's four or five, six plates on at yeah. that point, you're already recruiting as much as that glute possibly can recruit. So the mini band effectively doesn't add a bunch of value, but 
I think slowing it down and then, you know, thinking about the motion, right? So think about the upper thigh bone, right? That femur going into that hip. And as you're coming up into hip extension, when you start to then add that extra layer by getting posterior pelvic tilt, we're effectively shortening that chain, right? We're putting a harder contraction okay. through the glutes, even into that, you know, hamstring tie-in area, which that's gold for the ladies, right? And guys too, but especially the ladies, they're scored directly on these areas. And I think that was some of the rebuttal in the industry where there's, um, you know, some healthy dialogue and debate going, going on. Is there benefit to PPT at the top of this glute bridge or hip thrust, or is it just taking away from your movement? And, um, you know, I think among, among ourselves, we probably vote unanimously. Mm. There's, there's certainly value if you're using a controlled enough weight with good form at the top yeah. when you're in that extension, right? Getting into posterior pelvic tilt. Um, there's a few other cues too that, and I know we're running a little short on time, but I want to get on into um, other cues that we've recently heard, right? Um, you'll hear everything from traditionally drive through the heels. So the foot would be, you know, ankle would be into dorsiflexion versus, you know, drive through the full foot or even on the toe in plantar flexion on the ball of your feet. And these are, you know, some concepts that are definitely unfamiliar. And I don't think there's been a lot of actual studies around them, but let's start with a basic setup and kind of leave our audience with what we think the ideal cues and setup are. Um, I think starting with the knees, approximately 90 degrees of flexion at the knee, right? I like to take the, the stance, so the width of the feet, roughly neutral with the hips, maybe even slightly wider than hip width, um, depending on the individual. And then let's work from there. So foot posture, do we, what differences or changes do we see in the way the muscles work with the toe pointed up in the dorsi flexion versus down into plantar flexion? Yeah. So I like what you mentioned. If, if I go into this position for my bridge and my heels are directly underneath my knees, which I think is a, a pretty good thing. You mentioned 90 degrees at the knee. So that's the thing when you lift all the way up in 90 degrees at the knees. If you put the feet too far away, you're going to feel it more in your hamstrings. If you bring them a little too close, it's going to be a lot in the knee. So I think 90 degrees is a, a safe place. Now, if I decide to keep that 90 degree bend at my knee, but then I plantar flex and I go up on the ball of my foot, that now takes me not directly underneath my knee, but the direction that force is put out, however long your foot is, five, six, seven inches away from your ankle then you're moving the lever length away. And that will generally tend to engage the hamstrings a little bit more because the length tension relationship, as you start to lengthen the hamstring, the hamstring will then get more involved in it. So there's a mm -hmm. tendency there. I think it's a, I, I think it's a good exercise. I just don't think that it is. Um, I don't think it focuses. It's not as focused on the glutes. Your glutes are still going to work. When you feel it more in your glutes, your hamstrings are still working. All of these muscles engaging are okay. But if you're trying to prioritize, if you're trying to preferentially activate something over something else, then another thing you may want to do is feel it out for yourself, right? Like you're going to find what works better for you. I think what's important for us initially in the learning phase, Andreas, we always say, we're going to do it this way. This is the way we're going to do it. This is our general setup. And that's the recipe. However, when you get to be pretty good at cooking, then you get to make up your own recipe and you do what works better for you, for your palate, for your taste, uh, and for your outcomes. So 
there's nothing wrong with the other ways of doing it. I do think that driving through the heel will generally provide more glute activation, but it may not for everyone. So that's why we right. give kind of templates for people, templates for exercises, templates for programming, templates for movement. But it's not dogma. And right. the moment we start turning it into dogma is is when we stop with the creativity and we have to minimize dogma and we have to work on what works for everybody exactly. individually. What, what an individual, not just saying, here's our blanket. This is our movement and how we do it. Yep. No, I think you're right, Rick. When I think through that, you know, just visually, if we start out with the traditional hip thrust glute bridge, you know, let's say the ankle's neutral or slightly driving through the heel and a dorsiflect mm -hmm. uh, ankle position, you know, if we start to then push into plantar flexion and again, you're moving further away from that lever point, right? It changes mm -hmm. the way the muscles work. And then what's responsible for plantar flexion, right? It's about two thirds soleus, one third gastroc. And if the gastroc's pulling, we got overlap with those hamstring insertions. That's Guess right. what? The hamstring's under more tension. So I, I would agree a hundred percent. I think you take some of that emphasis off the glute and you start to distribute it among you know, other parts of the lower leg and, and the hamstring. So, yeah. um, you know, definitely neither are bad exercises by any means. It's just right. which muscles are you trying to emphasize in the movement? So um, I know we're running low on time. The last thing we're going to talk about real quick, yeah. Rick, does higher sure. EMG. So when we measure the muscle activity, right, does higher mm -hmm. EMG and muscle tension generally lead to more hypertrophy or is there is that null and void and there's really no change? I think that there's debate. And this is one where, again, you look at the, the research, some people are going to pull out that EMG studies will show the, the level of contraction and that level of contraction equates to, right? And then, but the, the argument being made is that you can isometrically contract muscles as well and you'll get a really high EMG but you're not going to get really good hypertrophy out of an isometric contraction. Mm -hmm. That being said, when we do studies in EMGs and people are doing exercises and you see an exercise that gets stimulated more, not through the mind muscle connection of it, right? So I'm, I'm doing EMG studies. Let's say we're doing it on step ups and we're doing it on deadlifts and we're doing it on a hip thrust and we're doing it at, on squats and none of this i'm going to give you a cue don't focus on the glutes let it do what it do and then we're going to measure it and through that measurement we see that there are really high percentages of maximal voluntary contraction then that's a pretty good indicator that you are under the mechanical load that you have the tension in the muscle and you didn't even have to think about it now, mm -hmm. the nice thing about it is that then we can start focusing on it and we can add uh, increased focus and contraction. And I do believe that there is a place for that. And I think that, that uh, the EMGs actually give you a really good idea of what to do. Now, I did just talk about this on my podcast, and I will also say this because this is something that I pointed out that. Uh, if you look at activations of certain muscles on EMGs and then you get some other exercises that are lower on the EMG scale and you look at those exercises, they're really good exercises. Mm -hmm. Then 
I would say prioritize the ones that are going to give you higher EMGs and then use the other ones as accessory lifts to give you a little variety in your workout because the variety is the spice of life and it might spice up those glutes or those biceps or whatever else you're trying to work on too. I love it. Rick, it's been a pleasure as always. I think everything that we talked about today is relevant and useful. And there's, I definitely foresee some subsequent episodes on this topic because there's so many other exercises to break down. And we encourage you guys that are listening. Um, there's no really no right or wrong way. These are specific to your individual goals and outcomes. And hopefully you have some clarity on which ones maybe add value and help you get there a little bit faster and which ones maybe are not for That's you. Right. So um, we encourage you guys keep being creative, keep trying new and different things for yourselves. Always send us feedback or any future topics that you'd like us to break down. So thank you guys. Make sure to check out Dr. Rick Ritchie also on NASM CPT podcast. And we will see you guys back on the next episode of the Peak Physique podcast. Bye -bye.